Hello and welcome to another episode of Is This Just Fantasy? I'm your host, Geordie Bailey. And I'm his spirit animal demon, Duncan Nickel. Yeah, you know what? I, I normally think your your opening one lines are pretty clever, Duncan, but that one that one is almost too easy, you know, too obvious. Do you know what? Even for that obvious joke to make, not it barely classifies as a joke, I feel like I could have mm. even put a bear spin on it. Even I'm ashamed of that one. Yeah, you could have said, I'm one of the weird and wacky characters Geordie's meeting on his journey, Duncan Nickel. And is that how you feel about our book today? The I'm Northern the armoured mammal that Geordie's riding across the snow, Duncan Nickel. Right. Um, yeah. If the title didn't give you a clue, we're talking about Philip Pullman's The Northern Lights. My pick yes. for book club. Um, I'm, yeah, I'm super jazzed about this, to be honest. Like, um, this was one of my favourite books growing up. Um, I, I read it as, as, a, as a hardback. I had two copies of the book, actually. Um, I don't know why. They had very, very different but very beautiful covers. And I read it as a hardcover. I also had the audio book, and I would just play it over and over and over. It was on cassette. Yeah, uh, adore, adore this book. Wow. I think I sound somewhere slightly different. So a bit of background, mm-hmm. this book came out in 1995. Um, I read it a lot later. I read it around 2008 to coincide with the release of a certain theatrical adaptation. Yeah, I was definitely ahead of that. I guess I was probably reading around 2006, 2007. To, to give you a clue, my copy of the book didn't say soon to be a major motion picture Fair enough mine didn't either although i have now got a copy which says um adapted as the fiat well, the live it was something weird it was like the the live action adaptation the golden compass and i think a quick address to that yes in the us of a similar to um how harry potter got slightly bastardized i the northern lights was released as the golden compass Mm. I do not feel it is as egregious as the Sorcerer's Stone. No. In fact, to be honest, uh, the naming convention kind of makes a little bit more sense in the context of a whole series than the Northern Lights. Um, the Northern Lights, I never really understood why it was the titular thing. This time, reading through with new eyes, I get it. I know why it's so important. But each of the books in the trilogy is named after a really significant item. The Subtle Knife. The Amber Spyglass, The Golden Compass. And it's kind of weird that the first book in the trilogy just doesn't suit that naming convention. Like, the Northern Lights are not an object. It's basically like... It's basically like a bolt of lightning, you know? It's, it's a physical reaction. True, and I think because of that kind of disconnect, though, because when people talk about the Golden Compass, they're often talking about the key kind of magical item in this story, the alethiometer. That's right. But in text, I don't think it's actually called a Golden Compass. I think it's really, really briefly called the Golden Compass. I think the Master Jordan says it's also called a Golden Compass. Or maybe it's Father Corum says, oh, it has lots of names. It's called a Truth Seeker. It's called a, a, a Thing Knower. It's called a Golden Compass. But it, often, it certainly is often referred to as a compass. People like think it's a compass. And I think that's fine. That's why... Like I said, we'll, I'll be calling it the Northern Lights throughout this entire episode. It'll probably be titled the Northern Lights because that's what it is oh, to yeah. me. But mm-hmm. I I get the different name. In fact, I do, and I completely agree with your argument. It almost fits the series better calling this the Golden Compass. The only upshot I do really like the fact that we do have the two names. As mm-hmm. now it's, it's now easier to kind of differentiate between the Northern Lights and the Golden Compass movie. Yes. 
Yes, a notoriously bad uh, adaptation. We should definitely, at some point in the future, do a an episode just on bad fantasy movie adaptations. We should rank them. We see how the Golden Compass compares to Aragorn. Oh wow, that was that was a special time, wasn't it? That was all around the same time. The kind it of was post- because everyone was trying to copy the success of Harry Potter. So you had the Chronicles of Narnia coming around the same time. You had uh, you had this. Ones. You had Aragorn. Eventually, you even had Percy Jackson. Spiderwick, that Spiderwick Chronicles, yeah. But don't worry. Then we got into like the Hunger Games era, and everything got better. Everything got better. Lionsgate yeah. actually made decent money for once, and then all of the successful knockoffs were were really fantastic. Uh, Duncan, I know you're a big fan of a Divergent series. Mate, I was thinking about Maze Runner. Sure, everyone loves the Maze Runner. Apparently, people actually do like the Maze Runner. I've never read it. It, it was so obviously just like you know, of the era that I just never bothered. I do know that has, like, a really controversial ending. Um, but anyway. Like the Hunger anyway. Games? Right, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> In Before the same we get into this Hunger. week's book, Ben, uh, Geordie, have you read anything else you want to share with us? Um, not really, actually. Um... We took the full two weeks to read this book. We thought we might manage to do it in one, but it just didn't really work out on either of our schedules. So I was a bit wonky. And honestly, I don't think I have read anything. I'm just very slowly plodding along with War and Peace. Um, that's really it. Uh, I, 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 I've been doing some writing, which I've enjoyed. And I've now started a new Dungeons & Dragons campaign, like professionally. So now I'm going to spend even more of my time doing professional Dungeons & Dragons. So, gonna get that money. Also, I saw the Three Musketeers movie. Okay, that's a lot. Uh, how was the film? Oh, so good, really good. I'm really glad to hear it. Does it on the spectrum of Three Musketeers? And I'm thinking Orlando Bloom's Airship, the '90s one that I loved, and like I can't even think of a serious adaptation anymore. Where does it sit? What what are we getting here? Is this historical? Um, I would say it's comparing it to the '90s one. The bad 2010s one, and the black and white one I saw the last 10 minutes of when I was a boy and seemed to really enjoy. Uh, it's definitely up there. It's um, it's, it's a good adaptation. I like The Three Musketeers. I feel like I've I've watched The Three Musketeers in every medium possible and still never finished it because it is very long. <laughs> uh, but that's the part that people know. Uh, it is in an interesting way. It plays around a little bit, like the character Athos, like is sort of uh, in trouble and needs to be rescued, as opposed to being an integral part of the team. Um, yeah, good, good adaptation. Good. All right, I look forward to that then. Well, what have I really read? Not a lot. I finished reading uh, The Dark Knight Returns, Batman: Dark Knight Returns by Frank Miller. Sure. It was what it was. Mm. Um, I wouldn't recommend anyone rush out for it. I don't think it necessarily. Yeah is the pinnacle of the character. And I don't think it's really the pinnacle of what Frank Miller wrote for the character. Uh, for those who don't know, Frank Miller was kind of hailed for really starting the transition into a more gritty element in comic books um, in the 90s. It sort of started before that and it definitely continued after and a lot of our voices involved. But I think Frank Miller is often the, the poster child for the more gritty 90s comic book era. I mean, it wasn't awful. It had some really nice bits. I think it was a, a well-told story. But I do feel uh, Frank Miller wrote another Batman uh, series called Batman Year One, which is, again, is a more serious kind of gritty approach to Batman. And I much prefer that story. I think it was, it knew where it was going. It knew where to put the focus in the characters. Um, I do think the artwork was a little better. So there was that. And the other thing, Jordi, I can't believe I didn't mention this because this was true for about 
two book club sessions now, I have finally seen the D and D movie. Oh yeah, <laughs> I did ever talk. Um, okay, I liked it, mm. but I did feel that it weirdly sat kind of in an interesting point in the spectrum for me, okay. where. It wasn't, I don't think I loved it enough. I don't think I thought it was like great enough and enough enjoyment to just like, that was an amazing film. I just want to rewatch that because it was so good. And at the same time, it also kind of missed out on being bad enough to be with like the Scorpion King and the Warcraft film in there. Oh, that was just so campy and dumb. Like, yeah, I'm I mean, having a really uh, fun time. There's plenty of this. good movies which you don't see a second time. That's, that's pr- most movies, right? Is that most movies? Probably that should be most movies. It should be someone's approach to movies, I think. I don't think it's my approach. I think if I'm sat down, I'm thinking what to watch. I'm far more likely to be like... I mean, how many times have you seen Schindler's List? Zero. Oh, well, that, that defeats my argument. You should watch that, Duncan. That's, that's okay. a good movie. Like, almost too good for this podcast. Speaking of this podcast... Northern Lights? Yeah. Actually, I, I regret saying that immediately because The Northern Lights is an extremely good book. Like... On every level, it's not just a good fantasy novel. It's just phenomenal, right? How did you find this book? Oh, this book was phenomenal. I think that's a Mm -hmm. wonderful word to say. Uh, Interesting enough, I never felt like when I was younger that I fully appreciated or knew where this book sat. And even now, I'm kind of having this conversation with you. I don't know Mm -hmm. really where to place this book in terms of genre, in terms of literature, and in terms of the timing when it came out. Mm -hmm. Uh, So can I give a brief summation? The Northern Lights follows the story of a little girl called Lara Balacqua. Uh, She's Mm -hmm. 12 years old, and she goes to Jordan College in Oxford. And everything seems fairly normal. Except every single person in this world has an externalised demon spirit, which is linked to them. It comes into the world with them and it leaves the world when they die. And they have this connection. It's not fully telepathic, but everyone can kind of feel their demon and know where it is. Mm. And this is a story of where Lyra gets wrapped up in this governmental... People. You're absolutely right. People conspiracy, which doesn't just control her world, but potentially other worlds beyond her own. And Lyra gets very brutally wished away from her childhood mm. home on this adventure to save her friend who is kidnapped by this, what we assume mysterious. to be criminal, mysterious group mm. known as the Gobblers. And it's about her meeting characters, trying to save her friend, trying to get back to her uncle, who she knows is in danger, and just trying to make the world a better place. Mm-hmm. Now, this is, as Duncan, I'm sure you're aware, this is a very controversial book. This book has been banned in libraries all across the world, um, even more so than, uh, than John Green novels that happen to have two characters have sex in them. Like, people... A lot of people do not like this book. Yes, I've heard this. Um, having reread it, this really surprises me. Oh, yeah? I really don't think this book has much actually... I don't want to say actually controversial, but I didn't really understand what the the concern was. It's a very straightforward... There's an authoritarian government, or faithful. I know it's mm-hmm. they call it faithful, they call it the church, but still, yeah. it's an authoritarian organisation, and the message is, absolute authority dictatorships are bad. I mean, it does say that. It also says 
religion is a tool for control and it has no basis in true faith it's just a means to control people like that's what it's about that is true i would always say it's though because... fundamentally like one of the most anti-catholic books i've ever read you know i would the only thing that i would throw over this particular book the northern lights is that it is in another world it is in a fantasy landscape so if you choose to take those messages and lay them over the church in our world which you're supposed uh, to and which, uh, which you will because that's what it's for it's an allegory i mean not even a very thinly veiled allegory lord asriel reads from the bible in this and says the church is doing this the church is doing that did you know the church used to castrate little boys so they had high singing voices pretty fucked up right i mean that's just the truth isn't it yeah i mean it sure is the truth can sometimes be quite disturbing so it often is what's really wonderful about the world in which philip pullman creates is is that is this very strange mixture and i think it really can be defined by the scene that i just brought up lord asriel says lyra bring me the bible he opens genesis and he reads and the funny thing is, is that despite how different the world is, he can read lines that are almost completely the same with only slight alterations where they mention that Eve has a demon and that when Eve eats the forbidden fruit, she doesn't just gain knowledge of good and evil, but a demon stops being able to change shape, which is what happens when children start to grow up into, te into like, teenagers and, and reach adolescence. So it's this kind of blending. I think that's thing to make clear. When we talk about other worlds, it's meant to be mm -hmm. kind of like a parallel world yeah, yeah so, very strange yeah, Lyra goes to you know jordan college which is a fictional place but it's in oxford yeah it's so in oxford, and oxford to is still well it's very interesting like and i think oxford really defines what's really special about this you know this book is it's split up into three sections oxford um oh what's the second one again oh gosh is it uh when she goes to london for the first time no it's when she goes to norway oh yeah you're absolutely right and then the final one is... Svalbard. Oh, is it Svalbard? It's a specific place in Norway. Anyway, so the point being that, um, you know, he paints this world which is just a little bit different. Like, they have different words, things, so many... And you have to do a little bit of effort to spend decoding stuff. And you see that ever so slight changes in the world's history means that things are different names. Like, you have different names and even different names for, for fundamental scientific principles. It's wonderful to spot all these changes. Like, Duncan, this is my favorite change. In Lyra's world, Oxford is, like, a really distinguished university instead of, like, a complete dump like it is in our world. Georgie, you, you live in Cambridge, don't you? I do live in Cambridge, yes. Why did you ask? Oh, nothing. Just, just always like to remind myself where my friends come from. I've been waiting to say that joke for two weeks. The wonderful thing about this world is how it's delivered to us. I think this is something that Philip Pullman does, which should be the envy of so many fantasy writers, which is that there is so little exposition exposition in this book. Things are stated so matter-of-factly, but the names of different countries, which you have to, like, literally deprogram in your head, was delivered to us. And, and characters will tell stories, but the narrator is barely, barely has a presence in the book. You're just told this. People will explain things to Lyra, and therefore you will learn it. This is one of the biggest elements that doing a reread of this book really just like shouted out to me something that actually made me wish i could be reading this for the first time when mm. i came to talk about it because 
having read the whole series, so much in the early part of this book is not explained. But I know what it means because I've read the rest of the series. So it It, was really fun to be like, oh my God, when when do I actually find out? How do I I know that? I know what this is doing, but it's not Mm -hmm. telling me. When do I find out? What would it be like again to read this and live with the mystery? Would I just forget about it? Would I just brush over that Yeah, I mean, I think that's what happened to me. I think when I was a kid, the stuff I didn't understand just went right over my head. And I really struggled a little bit with... Sasha Knight of the Amber Spyglass because there were some things I just didn't get. Like, I was like nine years old. I don't know what a subatomic particle was. I knew what an atom was, but only vaguely. Oh, wow. You were nine years old. Mm. See, I've read this later. I'm a bit older. So I, probably, I was probably like 14, 15. And there was That's still probably a good age. Like... I mean, like, I enjoyed the book a lot. Like, Lyra was only a little bit older than me. How did you actually feel about Lyra then? Lyra's meant to be a 12 year old in this book, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, okay. I, th- I I thought she was 11, but yeah, she could be 12. 11 or 12. How yeah, do you may- feel I about think there like... may be a bit where she says she's 11, but she also says that she looks young for her age, so maybe she is 12. She's pre-adolescent. That's the most important thing. How do you feel about Lyra in terms of child characters? Like... I think Lyra is one of the reasons why this book is so fantastic. Like, there is something really, really special about the character of Lyra. And I'm trying to put my finger on why, because one, she's so fun to follow. Like, she's just a really enjoyable perspective character. And I think that has a lot to do with the fact that Philip Ullman gives her a really strange intellect. You know what I mean? Yes. So with Lyra, she has this weird middle ground between being almost very adult in terms of her planning and her motivation and the Mm -hmm. way she can think up and... Uh, lies and lie to herself out of situations and near the end of this book when she's dealing with the bear king she's being so clever it's true yeah and thinking her way through these problems but at the same time she is still showing the child there's still things that she doesn't know she can be profoundly ignorant exactly is she's profoundly ignorant and it almost becomes weirder because you know when she's so clever and then she'll have these naive moments particularly around uh, the character of Mrs. Coulter, where she gets taken in, particularly in the early parts of the book, and you're like, mm-hmm. clearly evil, clearly evil, but you're almost like, well, actually, no. If any other 12 or 11-year-old, this is perfectly reasonable behaviour. It's only because you spontaneously show yourself to also be very clever and very mm-hmm. driven that it sometimes kind of gets a little bit out foot. Yeah, there's um, this very phenomenal bits, like, essentially, it's innocence. You know, that's what this is about. So much of this book is about the corruption of innocence. It's, it is a buildings roman, and that's a really important element to a buildings roman. Growing up. Uh, sorry, a, a what what? Uh, a buildings roman is a coming of age story. Thank you. Okay, so in, in many coming of age stories, it's about the loss of innocence, and that's certainly the case. Like, literally, her, her innocence is severed like Roger at the end of this story. That is supposed to be the death of childhood, the destruction of, of parents. You know, her, her her mother and father are now these villainous characters. Uh, spoilers but, for the whole books, by the way, if that wasn't clear. Yeah. Uh, so, so, um, it's just to speak more to her intelligence, there are times when she comes up with, like, really clever plans, where, like, she takes that, like, spy beetle thing and she, like, locks it in a tin, an identical tin is the one she keeps the lithiometer in, so that... When someone wants to steal the lithiometer, it unleashes, like, an attack drone. That's genuinely, genuinely genius. But there's also times when she just doesn't ask the lithiometer stuff she should want to know, you know? 
she doesn't think to do it because why would she question what she already knows? And this is kind of reinforced throughout the text. You know, even when she learns how to read the alephiometer, there are so many times we're like, if she just read that, we this situation could be avoided. Mm. And I think that comes up multiple times. But I never got annoyed at Lyra for not. Because every time Absolutely. I could either go, well, you're clearly busy and preoccupied, or mm-hmm. I completely understand why it wouldn't occur to you to find out more information. Like when she first meets Yorick um, Brackenson. Bernison. Bernison, thank you. When she first meets Yorick Bernison, that's even easier to say. Um, yeah, so Duncan, you know, alas, poor blank, I knew thee well. Yes. Yorick. 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 Yorick Bernison. When he first tells her her story, I was like, if I just met this giant armoured bear, I really would like to like drill down into what he's telling her, you know. He says he tells her that he got exiled because of a fight. I'd be mm-hmm. like, ask oh, the Yonder, find out all the details. <laughs> um, even in a gossipy way, but maybe that's just me. Um, but I like the fact that she's just like, yeah, that's what he said. Cool. I trust I, I like him. was really interested in the fact and i did not remember this that lyra is initially really scared of yorick which makes sense like he's a huge talking bear um because i have only have memories of their friendship but man uh i like going back through i knew i was gonna love it but best one of the best parts of this book is the companionship between yorick bernison and 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 lyra you know it just it's incredible it just flows off the page it's a very natural progression. We get this opening where Lyra's so scared of Yorick mm-hmm. that her own demon, her own like part of her soul, has to try and physically drag her to go and speak to him. Mm-hmm. And then I like the fact that at the very start, Yorick is like, I'm only doing this because... Um, I love when they first meet. Yorick person is only... Doing it's only helping her out because he's like either I owe you or he's even saying like oh because one of the adults in your life has told me to you know mm-hmm. Lee Scoresby's coming along I'm joining in or um the king of the Gyp- Gypsons um John what's Farr. his name John Far thank you I was going to say it's, it's the father one I'm really apologise for names I was listening to this on an audio book and for some reason that made it even harder for me to remember what the names you are. You know what's really funny about my experience of reading this book? So I mentioned earlier that we tried to get it done in a week and we, we failed to do that. And that meant that I had to listen to it at work, but I didn't want to buy the audiobook because I already own the physical book and was reading it at home. So I did something I've never done before. I will probably never do again in the future, which is that I just looked up a YouTube video of a woman doing her own reading of um, the Northern Lights on YouTube, which is illegal. Uh, and she's doing a crime and I'm, I'm, I'm aiding and abetting her. So, you know, Slap the cuffs on, boys. But I had a really interesting fun version going through this book because I had the non-professional version of an audiobook where it's someone stumbling over words and occasionally having to restart and occasionally there's just a loud audio squawk where it's just poorly edited. Um, the favorite, the, My favorite part is that when she introduced the character of Lee Scoresby, um, the aeronaut from Texas, Initially, she makes no attempt at any kind of voice because she very rarely does. But the second chapter she appears in, she tries a Texan accent and it was appalling. It was an appalling Texan accent and I was delighted. I'm glad that you got enjoyment. Obviously, what this one was doing is clearly illegal, but that sounds lovely. I, I really do like the idea of non-professional voice acting. Mm. 
um and doing audio narration i don't know why i think it's just the nice idea that like every anyone can tell you a story and some people do just have the right voice the right yeah tempo. she had a good voice but a bad microphone uh, I, actually, I might as well just actually cut in there and just say my little story because I listened to this, I said, on audio book. I actually got it for a great app called BorrowBox, which um, in the UK is for getting library books digitally. So it syncs to your library and your library card. You can uh, check them out digitally. The best thing about this is that when you run out of time, it just auto returns because mm. it's digital. So fantastic. Uh, this meant that there was a point where I really had to rush to finish this book. And I started out on 1.25 speed. Oh no! And then I went to one point five speed. Oh no! And the last, um, the last hour of this book was done on a one point seven five speed. Oh, God, Duncan! It was incredible, but weirdly, weirdly, unlike some other audiobooks, would be like incomprehensible. This was almost fine. Was like, the person was reading really... it just quite slow then? Yes, incredibly. This is like the Philip Pullman himself one. And he is ah. so slow. I've turned it back to one speed. I'm like, I don't think I'm comfortable on this anymore. Like, so, I have to do 1.2 bare minimum. So I had this experience reading this book called Children of Time, where I was reading, listening to the audiobook. And I noticed something really strange about it, which is that the woman who was reading was speaking incredibly fast. You know, she was just really running over the words, just really sticking to it. And sometimes it was really hard to even understand what she was saying because she was going over it so quickly. And eventually, I had to slow down the book. I put it down to 0.75. And suddenly, she was talking at a completely normal rate. But these really long pauses, in between sentences, she would just pause for a really, really long time. And I think what happened was, at some point in the process, Eva, she recorded with these long pauses. I was expecting the editor to snip them down, to chop them out, like I do for this podcast. I'm constantly just really just bringing down the gaps in between Duncan and I speaking. Someone just didn't do that, or they edited the entire book, they showed it to their producer, and they said, what the hell? What is with all these really long pauses? These are way too long. You're going to have to start all over. And the other person said, I can't do that. We have to get it out in two weeks. We don't have time for that. And they said, okay, just play the whole thing at 1.25. We will bring down those pauses by making the entire book faster. Anyway, that's my conspiracy theory. <laughs> Do you know what? I will subscribe to that theory. Clearly, that level of incompetence seems very real. So I'm going to buy into that. Mm. Whenever a conspiracy theory relies on a level of incompetence, I always find it much more easier to grasp. I'm like, yes, people are incompetent. Yeah. People are not evil masterminds. They are incompetent. It's true. It's true. People just make mistakes sometimes. What the fuck right, is happening? To- Duncan, I just opened my computer to try and look something up, and I have uh, the ad playing up the side of my screen is a nursing training model for an infant doll, and it's the most disturbing thing I have ever seen. Okay, uh, didn't know that exists. Yeah, this um... is what happens when you stop letting computers use cookies when you visit websites. <laughs> they have no idea what you want, and they start sending you really strange things. I am very uncomfortable. I'm going to reload my page and hope it doesn't show back up. <laughs> See, this I always get this every time I go on like YouTube at work uh, for work-related purposes. Obviously, looking indeed, at like guides indeed, or yes. whatever to how to do my job. Mm. Um, and because it's my work computer, it is so weird the differences in the advertisements. Like, I don't think normally like how um, precise and locked in on my profile my ads must be. But then when I'm at work, it's like. Why do they want me to buy a CNC machine? 
I've never seen this before. Mm. And it is everywhere. And it's just, I think it's a really good thing to like make yourself aware of sometimes because other people are just not getting the ads for the things you want. And the scariest thing is when you're like, you see an ad for something you recently like just thought of or thought you just mentioned to someone. Mm-hmm. And you're like, did I even Google this? I don't think I Google this. How do they know? <laughs> I don't know, do they, do, is my like profile just so accurate they know what I want before I want or, or are they listening? I don't know, guys. I don't want to be a conspiracy theorist here. That's not the tone of this podcast, but maybe. Indeed. Right. So. Um, back to the talking about your, um, fucking hell, Yurik's relationship with Lyra. Oh, yeah. It's really good. It's really good. It starts off with this element of fear and he's, he's not only helping her because of other people or because of a debt. Mm-hmm. I think it's a really nice build as they go out on adventures together and she rides him, run off into the snow, mm-hmm. that there's sort of confidence built between them. And I also like the fact that I don't feel it's uh they don't have any particularly extended sit down conversations. It's often a, just by being in each other's presence, mm-hmm. it's true. they're growing more relaxed. And then every so often they'll then have a conversation and you can just tell by the tone of the conversation that they're more casual. That's right. Or Yurik is more like indebted to life or more respectful. I think that's a key thing. Yeah, I think exactly. This, like the story, Yurik slowly growing to like respect and admire Lyra more mm-hmm. and more until you get to the very end of the story when he uh, takes her to see Lord Asriel. And Lord Asriel like goes outside to talk to him and it's like, he's here for you. He's come here because of who you are, Lyra. And mm-hmm. I think that was a wonderful arc to have. It was absolutely. And there's all sorts of things when we remember language routine them changes. Like he gives her the name Lyra Silvertongue she'll use for the rest of the series. Um, you know, she starts calling when the fight's about to begin with him and the uh and uh Yofa, the um the bear king. She's like he calls him dear Yorick and she's like she's apologizing. And there's this really strong sense of like trust and love between them. It's 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 actually really sweet. Plus, Yorick's just so fucking cool of a character. He is an armored bear who loves to work metal and is like so it's, it's so strong and clear about who he is. He makes all sorts of these really great declarative statements about bearedom and what it means to be a bear and how his armor is his soul. I mean, he is cool. I love the idea that he's so strong and so powerful, but when he does the metal work, he's so precise. I know, it's so wonderful. I do have a little bit of his, like, bears him and, like, this is what bears to be. And the message in this section, mm-hmm. um, in your sort of story, subplot, I suppose, is that, like, you shouldn't pretend to be what you're not. You are a bear, so be a bear. Indeed. And he's juxtaposed against uh, the current bear king, who's trying to make, become more human-like. Indeed. I don't know if that's necessarily a message that I necessarily get behind. It's like, well, I kind of prefer the idea of like, be who you want to be. And, you know, you don't have to be what society's telling you to be. But good on Yorick. You be the bear because I know you want to be the bear. Yeah, I wonder about that. I I, I need to digest that, actually. And I, I want to get onto some of the core themes of this book as we draw towards the end. But before we do that, we're going to play a game. Okay. I feel like I'm going to lose this one. So Lyra's world is not our world. It is a world where languages have developed differently. The church has a lot more power. So in this book, Philip Pullman will sometimes just throw out a word and you're just supposed to understand what it means. So I'm going to test you, Duncan. I've I've written up a, a glossary of terms from Philip Pullman's His Dark Materials. 
and I'm going to score you on how good you are at recognising what these words mean. Okay, I think this is going to be a lesson about how you can appreciate the plot and not understand any of the words, but go ahead. I'm going to make this one start easy, and then we're going to get harder, okay? Okay. Duncan, what is an aeronaut? Uh, Someone that pilots a... Well, that's a real word, isn't it? An aeronaut, yeah, someone who pilots like a hot air balloon, you go up in the air. Yeah, you got it. It's a balloon specifically, like yeah. as in not a pilot because they don't have planes; they have zeppelins. Okay, uh, okay, Duncan. Um, let's go for what is a fire mine? A fire mine? Yeah, it is a landmine. No, a fire mine. No, no, no. Oh, I've, I've just made that up. A fire mine is it something? It's actually like a. I don't know. Where's a fire mine? A volcano. What is it? What context is this used in? It comes up all the time. They're constantly talking about fire mines, especially in Greenland and Norway. The bears have fire mines. Oh, is it like a hot spring? Or, I don't know. Come on, what is it? It's a geothermal vent. Oh. That's how they get their power. Makes sense. All right. Okay. Duncan, what's a, what's a gyropter? Um, I have no idea what a gyropter is. You know what a Gyro, gyroscope. Yeah. Um... Gyropter, ropter, thropter, helicopter, some like a device like that. So it's a helicopter, is that what you're saying? Yes. It is yeah. a helicopter, well done. Awesome. Who finds a helicopter in this? Um, They go to a gyropter landing point when, she, when Lara goes to London with Mrs. Coulter. Ah, uh, okay. Duncan, what's a photogram? A photogram, a photo, a fo- photo, photon, gram... Message, it must be some sort of visual messaging system or just a photograph. What is it? It's a, it's a photograph or a, a, you know, a slide for a projector. It is a, fo- it is, it is a photograph, yes. There's a different word for photograph, it's photogram. Duncan? Right. Now we're going to yep. get into slightly harder stuff. <sighs> Damn. Duncan, what is it? Scrailing? Not clue. Fun fact: Scrailing. This is a real word in our real world. Scrailing. Scrailing. It sounds like a little S K R A E L I N G. Scrailing. It. It sounds like I'm not gonna lie. It sounds like the type of like low level D and D monster that like inhabits <laughs> swamps. Um, like level four maybe, kind of like this rat-like creature with elongated claws. Uh, not clue. It is an indigenous person. Oh. That's what Vikings or like, you know, the Norse word for like indigenous person is. Another thing. Okay, Duncan. What is New Denmark? New Denmark? Oh, God. What is. Is New Denmark like Greenland? No. Groenland is no. Greenland. Well, that makes more sense. I have no idea what New Denmark is. I'm assuming it must be somewhere. It could be like Canada or something. Is that your final answer? Yes. It is not Canada. It's America. Oh, really? Yeah. Because I it was didn't pick up on that at by, all. By, you know, Vikings and stuff. Mind you, they, they weren't Danes. They were, from, they were from Iceland. But I didn't pick up on that at all. That was something that I found really interesting. Duncan, what's um, New France? Is that Canada? It is Canada. Yes. Because um, oh, I was so confused, I say confused, but I found it very interesting because obviously this book, it's set in the other world's England and it, it sort of implies, I'm not sure if this 
is quite the case that that's the central hub of power of where the church is based in this world. No, I'm pretty sure it's, they say no. it's in Rome, right? They do say it's in Rome. All right. Yes. Okay, that makes sense. You want my favorite one? You want my favorite, yep. like, new version? Oh, actually, there's, there's three more. I forgot this one earlier. <sighs> uh, Duncan, what is Anne Barrack? Sounds like someone's name. Don't clue. What is it? Anne Barrack? They say it all the time in this book, Duncan. Anne Barrack. Anne Barrack. Barrack Barracks. Anne is a name. Barracks is a place. Um, is it like a swear word? No. Anne Barrack is electricity. They say it all the time. Anne Barrack lights. Anne Barrack engines. I literally thought they were saying those fucking lights, those fucking engines. Um, okay. <laughs> Duncan, what is Atomcraft? Atomcraft. Nuclear fusion or fission. Yeah, it's like if research into particle physics, you know. And last of all, Duncan, what is a cathonic railway station? <laughs> okay. Other than like a great thing to have in a Call of Cthulhu game, um, or the cathonic railway station i have no idea where where does this come up in the book this is in london the book? The... when La- when lyra leaves miss coulter's party she passes by at a cathonic railway station you know what the word cathonic means right the word cathonic well i'll be honest not in this context all right i'm from the word railway station all right Duncan, oh, so remember me. a couple of years back we were playing in dungeons and dragons together and your character got rescued yeah. from a person called the cathonic knight Yes. Why was he called the Chthonic Knight? Was he like he's like a resurrected creature, wasn't he? Yeah, he is. So this is a resurrected. This is an undead railway. Is that your final answer? Yes. Chthonic. Oh means... no 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 no! Underground. Yes. The underground it's, it's railway a tube station. station. It's the, it's a tube station. Well done, Duncan. Uh, how many was that? So that was a possible. Is that a possible ten? You got four. No, wait. Five. That's better than I expected, actually. You got 50%. Five point, that's I a thought you were doing way worse than that. 50% better than I thought you were doing. I am proud. Yeah. Shall we get back to the to the, to the rest of the book? Because there's a big element I want to chat about that we have sure only thing, touched man. on. Sure a bit thing, like Philip Foreman. My hardest one was going to be asking you what a, what a Muscovy was. And I'm glad you didn't, because I wouldn't have got the answer right. So, back to the big element of this book which is so interesting what set it apart when i was a kid and i think when you're reading it as a as a young person it's a bit that maybe you're like oh that's the fun element that's if it's like oh i wish i could have that in like the our world although to be honest the more i think about it, the more i would hate for that concept mm. and that is the demons that oh, is yeah. the personal pet spirit animal to every single human being Jordy, how does philip pullman like introduce this idea to us and explain it it's in the first sentence it's just in the first sentence lyra and her demon like that is just what you're hit with i think it's really nice that he uses the word demon instead of like spirit or soul like just using Mm -hmm. the word demon it has those connotations so you you can have a bit of time to try to unpick that and try and be like okay what do they mean also it lends into the larger message of the book these demons are amazing but i do find them terrifying so the core kind of story of the book is the idea that the church is wanting to find ways to separate humans from their demons, specifically from their souls. Well, yeah, <laughs> and that's what's so terrifying. In a, in a way to make people more palatable, happier, comfortable. You don't need that pesky self determination. 
we'll just cut yeah. that away. Um, There's this uh, thing at a certain point in the book where Lord Azure explains that they interpret um, the fact that demons change and solidify as as the, the proof of original sin. It all comes down to a desire that the human race be more pure. Which is so interesting. Uh, relating to original sin, obviously, because in their world, their genesis has the story that when Eve took the forbidden fruit, that's when her mm-hmm. demon settled for the first time. We're saying settled. Uh, before you hit sort of puberty, your demon can change shape. It can be whatever it wants. And so this kind of uh, metaphor for the fact that, you know, you're still growing, you're changing, your you're personality fluid. isn't yeah. set. Um, and then it goes into to jet, but once puberty hits, you're, you're locked in place. And mm. Obviously, everyone's demon sort of then represents a bit of their character. That's uh, right. The there's a line very early on where they say that uh, the servant's demon, like all servant's demons, was a dog. Now, how do you feel about that, Jordi? Because it's like, does that kind of imply that if you're growing up and then you're going through puberty and you're, your demon settles down into a dog, do you then mm. look at the dog and go, right, I guess I know where our place in the world is? Yeah, I mean, I think... To a certain extent, that is the case. I think people in Lyra's world probably are a lot more self-actualized than people in our world. You know, they probably get a lot more comfort from the fact they know who they are. You know, like, people in Lyra's world are never alone. They always have someone to rely on themselves. They have the externalized other part of themselves. And I think they probably do think quite differently. But I also think that if you are hiring a new maid... And you had two candidates, and one of them had a terrier, and the other one had a snake. You'd be like, I'm going to hire the person with the terrier, because <laughs> I can make a huge assumption about her personality. That lady with a snake is definitely going to steal from me. Oh, it would be so hard to actually be like a, a snake personality in this world. Because What's just a guy who goes, has a snake demon? What, what does that say about you? Who goes, yep. This is uh, Frank. He's got a snake demon. Don't worry, you can trust him. I bet, Duncan, I bet there are tons. Like, imagine Richard Pryor in in Lara's world, you know, making all sorts of jokes. Now, people who have lion demons, they walk like this. You know what I'm saying? But that's the other thing. It's like, so is this, if you have a snake demon, is that because you see yourself as a snake? Are you inherently a snake? Because we, as a society, see snakes a certain way. But like, not all societies in our world see the same animals in the in the same light. Sure. You know, I'm trying like to think hyenas, of hyenas. Perfect we think they're quite scary and spooky, but there's certain cultures in Africa where like hyenas are like clean animals. They clean up the dead. That's just like a a nice thing to do. So does that mean then, like, if say you're living in Africa, uh, you're Really, your passion is to clean and to look after and maintain your demons. Yeah, you're, you're a caring person. And then what? You move to London and you show up for your first like your job working like the I don't know a, a big museum. And they're like, yeah, yeah, don't know why. My giant hyena here will fit right in alongside the Jack Russells. <laughs> you know, here's something interesting about you. So you said Jack Russell. At some point in this book, someone is described as having a poodle demon. Now. Poodles are lap dogs, right? They're dogs you keep for your companionship. I don't think hoodle, poodles are are hunting or herding. Um, not anymore. Are you saying they used to be? 
I thought um, historically, yeah, poodles were used in far more violent connotations, but I will have to look into that. Because they're, they're known to be quite, like, brave dogs, like, quite stoic. That's why they can often get, like, those elaborate cuts and dies, because they're not freaked out easily. I think a really, like, small example in the real world my, of my, this. My point yeah? is, and I don't want to get distracted from this, is that why would anyone have a dog in this world? Like, at one point, when Lyra sees Yotha with a little human doll in his lap because he wants a demon, um, she says it's like having a demon lap or a little cat. But why would anyone have a cat in this world except for catching mice? Because you don't need the companionship. You have oh. the companionship of your demon. That is, I'm not gonna lie, that is weird. Would, would a demon get like? Imagine if you had a demon, and then you you had a you were choking your your actual real world cat, and you just let your demon be like, yeah, you sit over there, mate. That's Part weird. Of my soul. Well, to be fair, mate, some people have like moth demons, so maybe they're not as cuddly. Like you can't stroke a moth. What does it say about you if your demon? Mate, can you just imagine kids on the playground taking the piss out of each other for like what their demons are gonna settle as? Like, scream, yeah, like it would be such an insult. You just scream at each other, like, yeah, well, when you're going to be a slug. You're going to be a goldfish. No, 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 I'm going to be a goldfish. Like, there, there's so many questions about these demons, which I think, I don't think maybe were fully thought through, but I don't think it mm-hmm. matters. Or at least it's not fully explained to us. But yeah, like, you could have a moth. If, if someone had a dog demon, it's very taboo in this world to touch someone's demon. How do you know Indeed. if a dog is a, a demon or a Oh, I think people know. I think people know. Like, for one thing, they talk. And for another thing, I think they just will be seem more intelligent than um <laughs> than your typical than your typical uh dog. I get that. And I do you think also, because they talk about like the different types of demons, I imagine it has to be a creature that like you recognize. I think that's for sure. No one was getting a platypus demon. Uh, like no European was getting a platypus demon until anyone went to uh, to Australia. Maybe there were indigenous people who had platypus or kangaroo demons, but like Lord Azriel definitely, if he was born in the year eight hundred, would not have a snow leopard demon. He'd have a wolf or something. So did Lord Azriel have to go out and like find a snow leopard? There is a really nice bit I do enjoy. Um... No, he just knows what snow leopards are from growing up in like you know. And he is a snow leopard in him self yeah exactly oh, i get that there's a really nice spell like when um uh, pantalimon sorry uh lyra's demon is mm-hmm. like changing and there's a bit when he's in a fight scene and it, it describes that he turns into like a small lion and i was a bit confused whether not that meant uh, like a lion cub or it's the fact that like just because lyra's a small child her demon can't be the size of a full-grown lion i think that you can't get much bigger than a snow leopard i think there is a size limit like, at one point he says that his largest form is a bear, but it's definitely not a grizzly bear. It's got to be a black bear, which aren't that big. I'm trying to think if there's anyone... Because most of the characters we meet, it is like... There's plenty of mice and birds mm-hmm. and, and dogs. dogs. There's also, like, um the fact that... um you know, like, what's the largest one I have mentioned? Like, the, the porpoise, right? Like, a guy who had a porpoise demon. That's got to be the biggest one that's mentioned. Yeah, it's interesting. I also wonder, like, there's not a lot of talk about um, how... Because imagine everyone's taking, effectively, a pet around everywhere. Like, mm-hmm. when people go to a restaurant, is it socially acceptable? Does the demon get its own chair? 
it's not eating, but like, does it just sit by you? Does it sit up on you? I think What's yeah, I think it probably sits in your lap or by your side, like or in your shoulder if it if it's appropriate. I think you're you're allowed to have however much contact with your demons you like. It could climb around all over you. And then the next thing is, do you reckon it's like the social etiquette for how much you talk to your own demon in like the presence of others? Like, because at no point do, do I really get the idea that like two people and their two demons were having a four way conversation. Lyra talks to kind of happens bit but it but when it happens it's kind of for skullduggery reasons more so than anything else that's the only thing the only example i can think of there's a scene where lyra's trying to talk to her friend roger when she finds him again after he's kidnapped Mm -hmm. and they send their demons off to have a conversation and then their demons Mm -hmm. come back and tell them well they don't need to they can read their demons mind like can right can they read their demons minds yes they can okay it's not clear and it took me a while to make sure but yes and can, te- ten- can telepathically communicate with Lyra. He can send her thoughts. But he can send her thoughts, but they can't... They're not like the same mind. He is still a separate identity. So that's an interesting thing. And this is where we get quite Freudian. <laughs> okay. Because we that's do. Separate. Like, this is like this book is like, you know, he is the masculine part of Lyra all demons are supposed to be the opposite sex to their to their master lyra's demon is a boy a male character's demon should be a girl there are exceptions and those characters are kind of like ostracized i think we see two characters in the book who have um who have demons who are the same sex as them and they are understood to be in some way strange and a little bit like "Mm, there's something off about that I'm going to tell you why later. But yeah, there's something about this. It's like, this is the externalized gender. So here's the thing. So I'm, you know what? Since we're talking about this now, here we go. So Mrs. there's a really interesting scene when Lyra goes to London. And Mrs. Coulter gives Lyra a bath. And she makes Pan look away. Now there's something really interesting about that. Because okay. Pan and Lyra are the same person, right, Duncan? Well, like they yes. are one spirit. But yes. Mrs. Coulter, because Plan is a boy, insists that he looks away, and her monkey does the same. She erects this barrier of modesty, not between Lyra and a stranger, not between Lyra and a friend who is a boy, between Lyra and herself. She okay. is separating Lyra from her masculine side. She is building up walls around this is how you should act, how you should be. This is then reinforced later when Mrs. Coulter's flat is described as being very pretty and different from the masculine Jordan. Uh, there's a, and the stuff that she and Lyra do together is they go to parties and they go shopping. And Mrs. Coulter teaches Lyra how to be more feminine, teaching her about cosmetics. However, not in the way that she's actually like teaching Lyra specifically about it, but by representing to Lyra how it's done and making sure that she can see. Do you understand what I'm getting at here, Duncan? Uh, I'm not going to have the confidence to say absolutely yes, but you're saying that she, in Mrs. Coulter, she's representing the fact that in Lyra, there's a a dichotomy of being both feminine and masculine. Mm -hmm. And she's like, no, you need to focus on who you are. Mm -hmm. And I'm telling you, you are female. Exactly. Yes. Now, and of course, you see where I'm going. this, This ties into everything about why the church wants to separate people from their demons. 
Why are demons original sin? Why is the externalized version of someone's soul, why is it taboo to touch them? I thought it just seemed a bit, it's like touching someone in their um, intimate areas. It's just exactly. rude. It's exactly like that. It's, there's something deeply, like, sexual about it. When people, when we see Mrs. Coulter and Lord Azrael kiss at the end of the book, their demons touch each other as well. It's to be understood, and slight spoiler, at a certain point in the series, we see two characters who kiss for the first time touch each other's demons, because it's this profoundly intimate moment. Demons represent something inherently about sex and gender, and the church desiring to sever people from that sex and gender, there's a reason why, there's a reason why it's tied into ideas around oaths of celibacy, and very specifically, castration. Do not have the sexual desires we don't want you to have. Control your sexual desires. Things like, only have sex when you're married. Things like, don't have gay thought. You must be straight. You must, you must prescribe to our idea of how men and women would behave. People, in this book, not to go on too long of a rant and give you a chance to talk, Duncan, but people in this book, the characters who are a bit weird because they're demons are the same sex as them, those are clear, that's, that's clearly about gay people. Like, even when I was nine and barely knew what I meant, I was like, oh, of course, that's what they're talking about. You are smarter as a nine-year-old than I am at 27, potentially. Um, a lot of that, that, okay, there's nothing in what you just said, Jordy, that I disagree with in fact your interpretation mm. i do definitely think knowing the rest of the seas is what philip Pullman is probably definitely definitely going for um mm. not read any interviews with himself um what i find very interesting is that all of that's there and it's not even particularly hidden but none of it is in the plain text yeah, none of that is directly, allegory yeah Metaphor. it's all allegory and it's allegory to the point where maybe if you weren't as quite as a astute uh, young child completely just blew through <laughs> as a kid like utterly i saw the demon as part of the soul i saw it more as maybe a symbol of like rebelliousness um and that by cutting them away it i you know you became more zombie like more mm. uh, i don't know what the word um not consolable uh more complacent. malleable yeah, yeah complacent just easier to handle in society which is true because you're behaving the way they want you to behave. Your desires have been curbed. And it's just so interesting to see in this world then, is that a way a lot of people are doing it? Or is Miss Coulter a very special case? Because she is clearly a special case person. Or are there plenty of people out there who also treat their demons in similar ways? I It's hard to say. I mean, I think she certainly represents, you know, she represents an aspect of the church. So it has to be a broader idea yeah i think so i think that is um i think that is the perspective of the church as a whole and i also think it's very interesting um like i said all of that's there in this first book but i do think it does get more um uh, evident to those slightly less uh good at perceiving such things as the series goes on and so mm. when actually i reread this book it was more enjoyable because then i could read it with a bit more of that in my mind uh, but even those little subtle bits, you're right, I never really noticed that Miss Coulter, she's not trying to directly like educate Lyra. She's just putting on her makeup so that Lyra can see. So that Lyra has this element of wanting to do things that way. 
Um, I was I personally read that a little bit more of Miss Coulter being just a bit oh major plot point. Miss Coulter Slyra's mother. Lyra mm. finds that out later. Um, just being a bad mum. She's like, I don't know how to actually interact with a child. I mean, Miss so, Coulter is an abysmal mother. I'm glad we're in agreement. What yeah, do you think about Miss Coulter? Uh, very scary. Uh, it was scary as a kid, and um, and basically just as scary now. Right. Um, Completely funny, agree. Yeah. The funny thing is, and there's something really interesting about it. So I mentioned how like Mrs. Coulter is like a tool of the church. You know, she represents desire to separate the sexes. But I got a very different vibe from her, and that's because I'm reading this in 2023 instead of 2009. Um, because I got a real curfew vibe from her. You know. I I do know. Now you say it. it was on my mind when I first reading it through. It, it made me realise, reading through this book, that there's a whole different context into which this idea of policing other people's sexuality and gender like can be read in, you know, in 2023. Like, there is a whole... It's certainly theistic to a certain extent, but there's a whole non-theistic group of bigots who still want to do this exact thing. And now, it's not even just say, like, oh, this is the church trying to do this. It's just people who don't even have a dog in a race trying to control the way other people present themselves. I think what I also really do enjoy about the, the character Miss Coulter, because you know, she is so hateable, mm-hmm. so absolutely diabolical. Scary. and But she is so scary. And that's something that I spoke to my partner about. This was a scary book when I was a kid. And mm-hmm. I genuinely thought reading it now, because I, oh, well, I was young, I was a child, I said I was a kid, I was about 14, I was actually quite old. But mm. it was like, that's that really scary like parental figure, that idea of someone in power who does not have your best interests at heart. Mm-hmm. It was terrifying. But even now as an adult, I'm like, no, it's scary that this person exists mm-hmm. in society and had that power, has the power she has in her society. And the way she's written for Lyra to be this to kind of go from that something that she looked up to and have that kind mm-hmm. of betrayal, I felt so bad for her. Yeah, absolutely. Like, the moment that Mrs. Coulter slaps her in a book, I'd never read that. Never read that in a book up to that point in my life. I'd never seen an adult strike a child. It's really... It's kind of uncomfortable because of how not over the top that is mm-hmm. and how she wants to return immediately to the, the normal nice ways. Yeah, exactly. It's really, it's really like straightforward and profound presentation of abuse in which Miss Coulter does something to control Lyra, and then doesn't make, since she doesn't make a big deal out of it, she's like, okay, well, that had to happen, and so it's happening. And now I've got to say how much I love the character, and it's one of my favorite written villains. Yeah, exactly. Uh, she's a scary memory. character. She's wonderfully terrifying. I love yeah. the the mix between sort of her sweet and scary side. I love the fact that there's seeming much later we see her interact with the scientists and how they have basically the same reaction as the kids do. <laughs> um that was great. I think that um there's something really special about the way Philip Borman writes and creates all these different characters, you know? Like there are so many wonderful characters you meet along the journey who are even there for short periods of time and then they're gone, you know? Yes. I actually was really surprised rereading this how um like Lord Far kind yeah. of disappears. I know. Very much so. I really thought like she got back up linked up with him after the freeing the children. Uh so Lyra goes to the north, she gets separated from Lord Far, who's the gypsy king who helped her get to the north and escape Miss Coulter from London. There we go, plot summarized. Mm. Uh 
Lyra gets separated from him, gets captured, goes to where all the children are being held. She frees the children because she's a clever, smart, powerful person. Um, but then after she frees them, she gets kidnapped basically immediately again. And then she has to get saved by the aeronaut and they go off on another adventure. And she doesn't really speak to Lord Far again. Yeah, nor and... Far to Corum. Who's no, like I one can... of my favourite characters in the book. He's so wonderful. Completely kind of miss that um, element. And I think that's something that... I don't want to say it's a bad thing, but if I had to kind of do it a small like critique or elements of this book that I didn't necessarily love, is its sort of episodic nature. And that's really weird for me because I normally love episodic. I love small little contained adventures, but mm. each character we meet was so interesting. I always was a bit frustrated. Goodbye. I didn't want to say goodbye. I wanted to see what these characters were doing. And in I this... was really surprised by how little of Serafina Pecula is in this book. Because I remember her being really important. I know she comes back in the later books. And now it might be, might, might be why. But I thought she was enormously important. She's there for one scene. Just one. Like her demon shows up twice. But it's just her for one scene. She is talked about quite a bit but yeah she is only barely in the story and even all of the masters at jordan college i was like mm -hmm. did do you guys not come back ever and it's like no like the master at jordan i still don't fully think we ever get a full explanation of why he was like at the start of the book the master of jordan wants to murder lord asriel and i don't think we ever really roll back to that like lyra kind of surmises why and it comes quite evident why you might want to kill lord asriel later on indeed because you don't want to have a war in heaven. But we don't actually return to those characters. This is such a Lyra perspective book. That's right. You never get that point to underline that, to draw a line under it and say, yes, this is why he did that. You're just supposed to understand that he made that reason and then figure it out for yourself as the story goes along. So it does require a lot of that kind of extra thinking. I think I'm getting away from the point I didn't like it. So let's go back to that. So it is quite episodic. You do have these wonderful characters, but you do leave them. And I do kind of wish we had a little bit more to underline it in this book. I know the rest of the series, I have read it. And I know quite a lot of those characters, we do get those kind of tie-ups. But I almost at some points found that Lyra's perspective is like its greatest strength, its greatest hindrance. It's like Lyra is such a good character. And I think the way we're showing the world through Lyra's eyes is masterfully done by Pullman. But at the same time, I'm almost annoyed because I want to see more of this world. I want more explanation. I want like a wiki lore dump page to see what all these other characters are doing. Like mm -hmm. we were so invested, I, or at least I was, when it came to um, rescuing the children. And we sort of see them meet up with Lord Far and the Gypsons, and then we don't really see them again. I'm like, do they well, go yeah, home? but that part of the story's done. It's over. Like, they did it. They won. Yeah, but there's a lot of fine print in that. It's like, how no, do they we get home? No, we got more important things to get on to, Duncan. We gotta kill God. <laughs> so, onwards to killing God. Let's Hooray. talk about the end of this story. Um, look, do we have to talk about the end of the story? Like, no one's gone this far without it. Oh, yeah, she meets up with Lord Asriel. Lord Azrael has a conversation with her in which, like, it's, it's weird. Like, my, my memory of Lord Azrael is very different from how he actually is in the book. She chases yes. Lord Azrael up after he abducts Roger, revealing that you can travel to other worlds, which has been referred to way more frequently in this book than I remember. He kills Roger, and in doing so, by severing his demon, and in doing so, opens up a gate in the Northern Lights, which can then acts as a gate through to other worlds. Lord Azriel goes through, then Lyra goes through after him. I think Lord Azriel is a great moment at the end, because it's actually quite brief. This happens very, very quickly, all the events already just described. 
I think the fact that Lyra, who feels so betrayed by her mother, to then get betrayed by her father is incredibly emotionally impactful. You feel like... There's no one you can trust, Duncan. There's no one you can trust. This is... I said, this is the innocence finally being stripped away. Her last connection to her childhood at Oxford in Roger is killed. Um, I did think mm, there was... That's a good point. We don't, we don't dally on Roger's death as much as I thought we did. Um, I'm, I'm sure there's quite a bit of that in the next actually, book. But I think that's for the best. I really do. Plus, I think there's something... What I realised upon reading it this time is that there's something really interesting about the fact that roger is killed to be immediately replaced by will you know we haven't met him yet but will is coming up and he will in some ways completely replace roger as a character you know the important masculine figure in lyra's life in an extremely different way i think that's quite an important part of the metaphor around growing up what the childhood friends need to be placed aside to find someone else I'm sorry, Duncan. I need a new podcast host. <laughs> it's time to move on. I hate to I'm going to need to sever your soul from your body to create a new podcast. Mate, I am your demon. You can't get rid of me. Um, Dang it. Um, I'm, yeah, I, I was quite surprised as you. I remember when I was a kid, I went to see the movie and walking out the cinema and my mum, who had read the books, just being yeah. like, I swear she goes around on her ventures with a boy from our you, world. There wasn't a lot of multiple dimensions watched. in this. So you watched the film before the book? Yeah. I Oh, you poor fucker. Mate. <laughs> so I'm going to tell you this. Okay? Um, I watched the film and then I went, I attempted to go straight into the second book and I read about a quarter of the second book like, what the actual hell is this? Because the second book opens with Will and with you're just Will. like, this yeah. isn't, mum, I've got the right book. <laughs> yes, that's the one. I'm like, definitely not the right book the film for those who haven't seen it and you shouldn't see it it doesn't show the end of the book like the end of the book is really dark you watch a child die killed by your main character's father they stop like 10 minutes before what happens and it has this weird hopeful ending and as a kid i was watching it and i was just like what the hell is going on why did you do that that's so bad also, even if they thought they were going to get a sequel, were they planning to open the next movie on Roger getting killed? Yeah. Um, I remember, yeah, I remember that. And I, oh, so funny. I was having a conversation with my partner um, just before, before recording this. And she's saying like, oh, I never liked that movie growing up. It was like really dark. And I just said like, darling, they literally cut out the ending because it was too dark for the movie. <laughs> just so like, I don't want to know. Um, just a quick word though, for a good adaptation... His Dark Materials, BBC and HBO is wonderful. If you haven't seen it, yeah. season one... I haven't seen it still. I said I would, but I haven't. Season one, it does a few changes. It, I don't think it goes off text at all, but it certainly brings elements from the future, um, from the sequel books in earlier. But I personally found that very forgivable. Um, we do get a little bit of those elements which I just spoke about, those kind of other perspectives. It's not just Lyra. But again, I think it's very reasonable to what was going on in the books. Um, and as an adaptation, I think it's just amazing for the first book. I have things later on, but the first book, I think it's just a fantastic adaption. Ad Duncan, I'd like to wrap things up. Well, all right, mate. I, I have, can have breakfast too. I, I have one big question for you. Yes. What is your demon? What is my demon? 
Yeah. Oh, mate. Uh, it's so hard. It's really hard. You know, Chris, making such a statement about yourself, isn't it? It's how you see Indeed. yourself. And yeah, you can either you can either go too small and people are like, don't be so self-deprecating. Or if you go too big, yeah, you yeah. feel like boisterous. And it's interesting. I would say uh, we talk all of that about all those people having dogs. Mine would probably be, be a yeah. dog. I don't know what breed. I'm stuck. The problem is this, that I'm, I feel like I'm the same way, but I don't want to say that because only servants have dogs. The thing is, though, <laughs> I, the majority of people in society, like, if you think about it on the scale, like, Lord Asriel mm-hmm. has a snow leopard. Lord Asriel is planning to take on God in a fight. That's how yes, out there you yes, need to is. be to land yourself a snow leopard. So, on a sliding scale down, and some people have moths. I think a dog. You're doing quite all right. <laughs> I'm I'm stuck. I've I'm because I, I have. I feel like I've brought it down to the essential qualities that I need. It needs to be an animal which is like simultaneously okay with being quite quiet and trapped away, but also is extremely energetic. Like if I was a dog, it needs to be one that goes for a lot of long walks. You know because. I'm quite restless and often, and uh, I can't really stay still for that long. But I can't think about what that animal is. I'm thinking like cocker spaniel. Um, I know a cocker spaniel, and I really don't want to be the same as Nelly. Like <laughs> Nelly and I, we I love Nelly, but we we're, we're not the same, not at all. Growing up, I always had uh, like border collies, but I feel like they're too much of the actual countryside. Um. What, like the lassie dog? No, 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 no. Like a proper sheep dog. Like a um, babe. A sheep pig. Those dogs. I don't know. But it would we probably be. a black in. lab, a border terrier, and now we have a dachshund. Dachshund. I could be a dachshund. I can see that. Are you very hungry? Yeah. That's basically their defining quality. Oh, hey, got yeah, it. we got yours. You're a dachshund. Right. <laughs> it's so sad, but I think it's being honest. I think anyone who genuinely comes into this conversation and was like, and would be like, Mine would be a hawk, or mine would mm. be a. I don't think mine would be a wolf or a bear. I'm like, mate, really sorry. The thing is that only people who have wolves and bears and stuff are like soldiers and mercenaries. So you got to show your qualifications, I think, before you do that. Right. Well, imagine your demon was a seagull. Imagine that. Oh, it could be so. Living ins- in Brighton. Imagine not being. People would be throwing chips at your demon all the time. Imagine not being happy with your demon when it settles, looking at it and going. I bet a lot of people aren't. I don't. I don't think I could. It. A lot of people. A lot of people don't like themselves. <laughs> also, like I feel like I would want a demon. Although on the same side, though, I would kind of want a demon that I could sort of hide on my person. Um, oh, right. But there's a small boy in this whose demon he calls Ratter, and I'm like. Setting yourself up there, kid. Like, are you... That's a good... Like, who names a demon? That's a good point. Do you... Oh, yeah. Do you name it? Does it have a name? Do your parents name your demon? Ooh. There's the big question. <laughs> like, so when you're born, I see... I always imagine that the demon, like, materialises as you come yes, out. I'm sure that's true. But then, like, do you... Do they instantly put the demon with the baby? Yeah. I bet, I bet you put the demon right on that baby. And then do you reckon the demon's going to be a baby of whatever animal it's in? Not necessarily. Hmm. Interesting. I think there's so many questions about how this world works. That I would like love... Lyra's a kid, and when Pan turns to a bird, he's a fully grown bird. He's not a chick. Yeah, no. Fair enough. I can see that. But... I think 
a rabbit. I think that's a good choice for me. You know, needs to be very energetic, moves around a lot, likes to be hidden away in the dark sometimes. I think we've got it. I think we've found this nicely. So... With nice floppy ears, that sort of rabbit. Anyway, I'm done. <laughs> you like the Northern Lights? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Great book. Really looking forward to my next choice. No suspense here. We're doing The Subtle Knife. I uh, I sense that one was coming. And I'm really mm-hmm. happy for it. I think this is a great series. And I'm really hoping that maybe our Subtle Knife. Who knows? We may then get to do the next book in the Scholar Man series. If you're lucky, Geordie. Wait, but... Duncan, you can't do this to me. You can't. You can't dangle the amber spyglass and then say we're gonna. No, no. It depends how much I like subtle knife, mate. Um, but it was always my yes. favourite as a as a kid, and I enjoy the Northern Lights now. Reading it again now as an adult, more so than I did as a child. I still recommend this to a kid. I'm not gonna lie, Geordie. I probably wouldn't give it to oh, a yeah, nine year old. Sure. I probably went to the kid with at least <laughs> the same age as Lyra, like eleven to twelve at the youngest just so i think they would appreciate maybe a bit more but again every child's different their reading level whatever uh i i was i mean i was a pretty advanced reader at nine years old but um yes for sure you could um i think a kid of nine years old can handle this book they're just not going to get a lot of parts of it and that's fine like you don't need to know what atom craft is as duncan has aptly demonstrated it's wonderful and it's quite interesting because despite this book being great as we said i don't really feel like for 1995 it made the same impact when it first came out at least not to my knowledge it sure did buddy did it? it was being banned in schools and stuff i mean that's not exactly the impact i was uh i was kind of gunning for us like influenced it was an extremely for... successful series of books i think i just missed it i think being born in 96 i was just kind of harry potter like i was aware that it was big where i think this is just I mean, wrapped... that's not a fair comparison it's a it's a ya fiction is this ya i'd say so it's a building roman yeah perfect coming of age that's what that means yeah. i've learned such so many words this session and only one of them real no two of them real <laughs> in the Icelandic word for uh native so great and if you have any thoughts on the northern knights the his dark materials in general or any other book that we have looked at or are yet to look at on this book club please let us know your thoughts at is this just fantasy podcast on instagram and you can contact us at our gmail at is this just fantasy podcast at gmail.com love to hear from you if you're listening to this and you're not following us on instagram i'm not gonna lie we don't put the most amazing stuff up on there but we're looking to improve so please go over we're getting um, we're getting better we're getting better i i've realized that i have access to a canva account so it's about to start looking a lot nicer. good because i'm having to do the entire thing in the photo app on a yeah i've noticed i hate the font you were using for whatever you like literally just helvetica or whatever <laughs> it's the only font my app has i need to get something decent oh no i'm sorry i left you the look like that don't I'll, I'll, I'll help you out a little bit more of that but if you'd like to message on itches fantasy podcast at gmail.com or on our instagram let us know what would your demon be and why or what would be like the best demon to have because if you have like the powers of animals like bats have sonar so like what is the best demon to have monkey if you're min maxing monkey has like can do all of the jobs that you can do it's true your monkey to work it's true Monkey's pretty good i'm gonna say silverback gorilla oh yeah but who's getting a gorilla mate <laughs> what type of person do you have to be to land yourself a silverback gorilla maybe eddie hall <laughs> maybe like a world strong man i can see that do you reckon the gorilla would then also do the competition 
be like world's strongest oh demon. hell yeah that'd be so good imagine the olympics in this world oh my god well if you're a fast swimmer like your animal would have to be something else that like swims fast surely but exactly it... all those porpoises swimming they just do just do competitions where it was just the demons facing off all those porpoises facing each other down sailfish imagine it's not a sailfish like just world champion again and again and again if like two demons fight is the winner and like the two humans are because every time we see demons fight the humans are kind of fighting as well if two demons fight and the humans are standing there does it kind of represent who has like the strongest will or like the strongest personality kind of actually they say at one point that like lyra has a disagreement with a girl at bolvanga and Fran and that demon girl's demon do a little scrap, and she wins, and that means she wins the argument. But they say that people tend to grow out of that when they grow up. Like, that's just a thing that children do. Just, just wonderful, both And no, Duncan, I think it represents that you have a stronger demon, and that your demon is just bigger. Well, maybe, but your demon must represent your personality, so... It does, so if you're an aggressive asshole, <laughs> you have a wolf, of course you're going to be able to fight the terrier. Fair enough. Anyway, I've been your host, Geordie Bailey. We'll see you guys next time for The Subtle Knife by Philip Pullman. See you then, everyone. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.